Our scripture reading this morning is Luke 2, verses 1 through 20. Luke 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went up to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went in haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Anna. Thanks, David, for sharing about the Strombergs as well. I'm really excited, actually. I hope you are, too, that we're starting and you are starting to hear more information on our missionaries in our services so that you can know and and at least put a face to and some type of structure to the ministries that our individuals are doing that we support. Uh, And really excited to bring on a couple of of new young families in the two open spots we had in our budget to uh, fill, to support, and to partner with. I'm hopeful that we keep growing in that way and that someday we begin to even send some short term teams again uh, on some trips to some of those places. I'm really hopeful for us as a church and excited to to share that uh, this morning with you guys, the the Stromberg family. Well, this is week four of Advent today. And we'll be talking about, as we've heard in the scripture and we've been singing and you see a, a manger here on stage, we're talking about the birth of Christ in Luke 1 through 20 this morning, a story that is so familiar to probably most of you. We've been talking about that throughout the Advent season. It's so familiar, but my hope is to have us see it with fresh eyes this morning, as we've been trying to do throughout the weeks of Advent, and fresh ears this morning to hear the train whistle. If you remember my analogy from a couple weeks ago, the train sound in Canby, we've all become so used to, it's become just, uh, we're not even, we're oblivious to it. It's become background white noise. We're so used to it, we don't hear it anymore, like Christmas, because it's too familiar to our ears. And speaking of sounds and ears, the idea of dissonance is when two sounds clash. Do you know that sound? Two or more sounds don't go together. They just clash, and it doesn't sound pleasant to our ears. Kind of like, like this. That's a pleasant sound, huh? <laughs> At least I got your attention now today. <laughs> That's dissonance. Now the point is this. Luke sets up for us a story of dissonant sounds. That's why I wanted you to hear some dissonance. 
contrasts, and there's another way to put it, in the birth of Christ. And it looks like on the surface, and actually it is, sounds of dissonance or contrasting. Oh, here's just one way before we get into the text. No human being would ever, ever written a story where such a magnificent person, the incarnated Son of God, was born in such average circumstances. At that time in history, especially in the ancient world, you never would have written a story like that if you were wanting to present to the world a magnificent human being. Sounds ridiculous. We're going to look at some of those details in the story that are a little bit ridiculous and actually scandalous. Dissonance. Those two sounds, a contrast. But the meaning of this birth that we're going to talk through today and the result it can have in our lives is absolutely extraordinary and it's actually present in the contrast, the meaning we're going to get at today. If we'll listen and hear what seems on the surface in the story dissonant is actually beautiful and it makes a lot of sense. So we're going to listen together today to three truths, three contrasted truths, dissonant, whatever word you want to think of this morning. So hopefully you got your outline there. And your scripture opened to Luke chapter 2. At Bethany Church, we believe that God still speaks today and that when we open God's word, God speaks to us. But our question as we do that now is, aren't we willing to listen? Are you willing to have your heart impacted and confronted with the truths of, of, of this story? So let's look at our first of three contrasting truths. Let's start there. Here's our first one. The contrasting nature of the incarnation. The contrasting nature of the incarnation. Christmas is the celebration, isn't it? And it's the realization, if we're to define it a little bit, that the second person in the Trinity, the Son of God, became a real, actual human being who was both Human, actual, real human, but and simultaneously divine. This was God in flesh we're talking about born. God come to redeem humanity as both a human and God, two natures in one person, two full natures in one person, a real human with a real body, the Son of God who placed the exercise of all his powerful nature and all his knowing power under the authority of God the Father on his time on earth. He didn't cease to be divine either, though. He just submitted those powerful attributes to the Father's discretion, and he became a baby. Well, first, a single cell in an unwed teenage mother's womb. Talk about contrast, right? Talk about dissonance there. <laughs> but here, too, in our Christmas story, is born, Jesus is born in contrast to the God of the land at that time. Let's look at this. Let's look at a human who wants to be God and God who becomes a human. Here's our first kind of contrast underneath this first point of, of the incarnation. A human who wants to be God and a God who becomes human. Here we have in this story in the beginning, first few verses, uh, the brilliance of God's providence. Providence is he's working in and through every detail and decision made on, on, on planet Earth. He's working through Caesar Augustus, who was the Roman emperor, really the ruler of the world at that time, exercising his might, his power to ask, did you hear in the text, all the world, all citizens, each citizens, the verses said, to go to his own hometown to be registered for tax purposes, or really to kind of get the numbers in to sort of fuel the ego of Caesar. It's fascinating that God is allowing the birthplace of the Savior to be determined by the decrees of an earthly king. So who was he, this Caesar Augustus? Well, he was the first Caesar to actually be called Augustus, which the word means really holy or revered. He was the first one. And so it was in the lifetime of this Caesar, who was alive when Jesus was born, that the Romans began to revere the Caesar as a god. And there's even some ancient inscriptions that talk about him as the savior of the world. Um, so the NSB even translates the leader of all the inhabited earth. So what we've got here is a man who is a self-proclaimed god in this Caesar, Caesar Augustus. 
And here we've got contrasted with the birth of, of Jesus with this Caesar, a, con- a contrast between what the world deems as might and power and what God deems good. Jesus, remember now, is the one that is in our first couple of weeks, Luke has already told us about him and, and, and who he will be. Remember from Luke 1, as Gabriel spoke, he'll be great and he'll be called the son of the most high and, through the, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. It's a magnificent description, isn't it? Or like... Uh, John the Baptist's father, who said in the passage following this one today, he said, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. He's describing Jesus' birth as a sunrise. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. His coming will be like the rising sun to defeat death and bring peace. And uh, it's a bright light in the world. Such magnificent words, right? And a glorious description of this contrasted baby born to this man, Caesar, who wants to be a god. And that sounds like the kind of birth, kind of language you'd expect around if Jesus is the son of God, here to save the world. That's the kind of language you would expect, more like what we'd expect of a god who became man. Yeah, think about his parents now as we contrast to what actually happened. His parents were forced to travel to their homeland without transportation. Maybe they rode something. Maybe they didn't. We don't really know. And they were an oppressed people, oppressed by this Caesar in Rome. They were an occupied people. Their land was occupied. Think like Ukraine with Russia today. They were nobodies from a nowhere town. And now the arm of this fantasy god Caesar was squeezing into all the corners of the the known land at that time to wring out every last tax penny. And it was here in Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, that he was born. It's another contrast here as he's born. As now we get to the birth, it's almost unnoticeable. It's almost, it's the most humble birth. You could almost miss it in the story. If you just were reading it, maybe for the first time and didn't really know much about it, you'd almost miss it. Think of the contrast of all those glorious descriptions that we just read. Here's the birth. And look at verse six and seven with me. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling claws, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. You, you, you get there like, they're almost like, what? Wait, well, that's it? That's all we get? I mean, if I was going to write you about the birth of my firstborn, or, or let's say maybe you were going to call your, your, your son who had just had your first grandson, and he, you, you called him and he answered the phone, he said, Mom, he was born, I put a pacifier in his mouth, and I set him down on the ground, and he hung up on you. What would, you, what would your response be? I mean, you'd be ringing him back up instantly. Wait, what? Give me some more than that. Give us more, Luke, is kind of what we're left feeling. But that's the point. That's actually the point. If you were to send a birth announcement, and maybe you have or you've gotten one in the mail, you, know, you would send this beautiful and descriptive and a nice glossy photo, a haloed picture of your new firstborn. But here it's the most ordinary birth description. And that's to contrast against Caesar. That's why Luke does it. I mean, it's so simple. An ordinary village to ordinary people contrasted with Caesar, this this faux God-man, man that wants to be God, who's really pulling the strings on the world at that time. And Jesus is born in a stable, he says, which is either one of two things, either a cave where animals were kept or in the center of a courtyard with surrounding little stalls or rooms where people would stay and the animals would be kept in the courtyard. That's really... There are really only two options for that time of history. It's wretched where he's born, even scandalous, all to contrast against the one who thought he was truly in control, the one who thought he was truly mighty, 
Caesar Augustus. Jesus is just born. It's so simple. And then they lay him in a manger. I brought our manger up today from the out in the front of the gathering place. It looks like this. You can kind of see it everywhere. Everybody can kind of see it. Kind of a, a little wooden basket. Um, maybe even could have been a stone trough. Uh, more than likely, maybe than even a wooden basket. And here's our contrast. Heaven was placed in a feeding trough. Uh, you could say eternity was placed in a feeding trough as eternity was placed in the body of Jesus Christ. A stone trough. How many of you would like to take a nap in your dog's food bowl? <laughs> I wouldn't. No, of course we would not want to do that. But imagine this. Jesus, the eternal word, son of God, takes a nosedive from the heights of heaven. The one who stood over all the chaos in Genesis 1 and formed it and shaped it into what we know, now like cannonballing down with light speed, coming to earth and being placed in a food bowl. It's a contrast. It's dissonant. Like, wait, wait, that doesn't sound like that should sound. It's clearly a step down for Jesus. Jesus' birth it really challenges, especially in this first point we're talking about, our values, our value structures, the way we place things or people or items or jobs or, um, you know, careers, anything in a, in a hierarchy. It contrasts that. It kind of upside downs our world. Here's the one who we should be celebrating and gathering around, this Caesar Augustus. No, but then here's this little baby so ordinary. There, there probably wasn't anybody on earth that day born in a more ordinary, unnoticeable, humble, and even scandalous event than Jesus Christ. Nobody on earth probably. It, this is a major challenge to our view of the world, to the structures of hierarchy we have, where leaders are magnificent and powerful, and the poor is overlooked, and those who are maybe not popular, or those who are just a little strange or a little off, or, you know, it might not smell like we do, right? Those, that's kind of how we structure the world. And our culture of, of self-promotion, how has that grown in the last 10 or 15 years with social media? social media to self-promote. And I was reading this week another article about the idea of humble brag. Have you heard that term, humble brag? It's a way to kind of put something forward that is supposed to really sound humble, but you're really kind of bragging about yourself. Therefore, humble brag. Here's a couple of them that I found on the internet that were kind of funny. Uh, this one said, hey, just paid for someone's lunch at Wendy's on Bay Street. Enjoy your day. The response was, uh, most people do this without looking for recognition, just saying, but it was a nice gesture. And this person responded, not looking for one, just wanted to say you're welcome. And the person said, well, most people wait for the thank you first. <laughs> a humble brag, right? Hey, just wanted to say have a good day, just pay for someone's lunch. It's a humble brag, self-promotion, getting myself out there and, and getting supporters and likes and cheers and, oh, you're so great. Here was another one. Uh, there was a picture of her baby and it says, this baby made my day. I can remember when our baby was two years old. She'd already mastered her ABCs and one through ten counting. Currently, she's three years old and first honored to her nursery school. And somebody, somebody replied, oh, yeah, well, my three-year-old just got accepted into Harvard. I'm so proud of him. <laughs> my favorite, which I didn't show a picture of because it's not appropriate, but there's this, like, buff dude standing there shirtless. And his little niece is there in the picture at the very bottom, and her back is to the camera. And he's handing her a, a, a gift. And he goes, oh, I'm, I just, I'm so serious. I can't, I forgot how much I love this picture of my niece. <laughs> like, yeah, right. You didn't see her face. She's back to the camera. He's there all, you know, six packed out. <laughs> Jesus isn't tweeting out his uniqueness or how great he truly is in his birth. While he could have, you know what he does? He leaves all the trumpet blowing to the angels. He's just born in a, 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 a dog food bowl. It's a food bowl. The gospel of Jesus shows us that true greatness is not from the externals of money, of power, of prestige, of the ability of Caesar to control the whole population. No, the beauty of the gospel is in the inner person. So it didn't matter the circumstances of what Jesus was born in. 
Because inside he was perfectly beautiful and perfect and sinless as we know. Yeah, it doesn't, um, it, doesn't, it doesn't match up with the way we view the world. Now, the externals didn't matter. The inner mattered. And that was true of Jesus. He was the best inner person, right? We would say that. But in the details of his birth, the externals, in the details of his birth, it's in his inner person he shows his true greatness. But the details are simple. It's service. It's sacrifice. He loves to come to those who don't have a fancy zip code or those who don't live on the right side of the Canby tracks, whichever that one is. I wouldn't say. I don't even know. But the right side of the tracks, you'd get that, right? It's the first contrasting truth we see. The baby that Mary carried was not a desperate man, humble, bragging to be a god, but glorious God who'd become a man for you and I at Christmas in such humble ways to show us that he values things the world doesn't. Let's look at our second contrasting truth. The extraordinary meaning of the incarnation. If the first was just, uh, if the first was the contrasting nature of the incarnation, the second is the meaning of it. So what does it mean that Jesus became a baby, a, a human? What's the meaning of this humble birth? This is the Son of God who's come as a baby to save us from our sins by living the death we couldn't, it's the gospel, living the life you couldn't, excuse me, and dying the death you couldn't, to pay for sins that we couldn't. But it's even as we get now to the meaning of the incarnation, why God became a baby and a human, and when we get to the sharing of the message that the shepherds shared, that we get another kind of dissonant contrast that's going to shape us. Here's what I want us to see. The message is true. The meaning is true of the incarnation. The message is true even if the messenger is an unexpected messenger or even if the messenger is flawed, as our point says. The message and the meaning is still there comes in the contrast of these glorious angels, as Anna was reading. The angels who give the meaning of the incarnation, they give it to these common, ordinary shepherds. Shepherds were considered very ordinary. Their job is portrayed pretty positively in Scripture, the job of a shepherd. It's really positive in Scripture. But in culture, as a class, they were not so uh, special. <laughs> they were average, they were common. They were ordinary. They were like you and me. They were like us. Just ordinary people. Standing in contrast before this glorious, heavenly, shouting, singing, I'm not sure quite how they communicated, but it, it was something because they were afraid. They were standing before this heavenly host, just these ordinary guys with their sheep out in the fields watching their flocks by night. And as we hear that, there's this contrast between how glorious the, the transformation of the meaning to these shepherds was by the, this host of angels to now it's in the hands of these ordinary guys, common, humble, ordinary, and even a little bit later in culture, despised shepherds were at some point. And as you hear that, you might expect that everyone after that, early on, maybe would get angels to give them the message. That would be, I mean, either way, I would plan it. Here I'd done it a couple times uh, with Gabriel, with Mary and Joseph, and then um, Elizabeth, her, her, her family member. You might think that he's going to go and give this, it's a glorious message. Why not use this glorious means that you've done so far? But not so. The shepherds got the glorious angels. Everyone else after this just kind of gets a plain, ordinary common shepherd to hear the message from. The shepherds got angels. Everybody else just gets the shepherds after this. Verses 17, 18, the story tells us they, they, go, they go from there. Angels disperse and they go from there to share with whoever they could in town. The message, what they heard, what they heard about this baby. And there's a great lesson for all of us in this. We all want, I want something, if it's communication from God, to be big and flashy and, and obvious and right in my face. We all want the communication of, of, of angels. But guess what? Most of the time in life, it comes through shepherds. <laughs> For most people, 
Well, you say, well, God did it for others, you might say, so he's going to do it for me. He spoke through a flaming bush, so why can't I have a flaming bush, right? He spoke through a fiery mountain, and yet there we've got Elijah who gets a still, small voice. Well, why not me? Or how about after Jesus' resurrection? Think about that. They got Jesus for 40 days after his resurrection. They got the best of the best probably the best seminary class anybody could ever have, and they were with Jesus in the flesh, but then he leaves. And what does the early church get? The ragtag group of fishermen, disciples that he leaves behind. The rest of everybody else gets the disciples. He leaves. Now, I'm not saying God couldn't speak through flashy angels and visions. He can, he might. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is, is that God's primary general way that he seems to speak to you is through the unflashy Bible you're holding in your lap. We want angels. He usually gives us shepherds. Through the still small voice of the Spirit using that word. And that book that we've got that he speaks through to us, the Bible, it's divinely inspired. We believe that. Down to the words in the original manuscripts, divinely inspired by God. And yet it is also, it's one of those contrasting things, it's also written by humans too. Which means as as a human, divinely inspired human book, it takes a lot of work as a human to understand the ancient writings of other humans. It takes a lot of work to understand it and to apply it. It can be excruciating work at times to get to the core meaning of what the Bible is saying in parts and places. We want the flash, the bang, the ease of angels coming down. And what does God give us? Shepherds. We want that. In the recent season of The Crown, anybody watch The Crown? Like two people? I'm really shocked. Three? Okay. Oh, there it is. Now hands are coming up. Okay. I know, okay. I know it's a popular show. Uh, I was thinking, I'll just skip that illustration. That's just gone. I saw enough of your hands that so we'll do it. Uh, the, the recent season of The Crown... Well, you know the history a little bit, at least. Um, you've heard of, of Dodi Al-Fayyad. He was the man that Diana was dating and died with uh, that day. Well, in this season, though, it kind of goes back in history to their family, the Fayyad family. I didn't realize how instrumental they were in British culture. I knew they were a wealthy family, but um, he, he buys Harrods, the apartment store, owns all kinds of stuff. But in the recent season of The Crown, his father, Muhammad Al-Fayyad, he so desperately wants to matter in British culture. He's just trying to break into the, the big leagues in finance and in reputation and in business dealings. He so bad wants to break into British society. You might even look at him like the, uh, the Caesar, uh, the, the man wanting to be a god. He wanted that power. And he's working to get an audience with the queen over the, this season. It's kind of interesting. And every time he gets so close to having an opportunity, guess what? He doesn't get the queen. He gets one of her servants. <laughs> or at one point, uh, Diana sits with him when it was supposed to be the queen at a horse race, which did happen, I think, historically, instead of the queen. He wanted angels. And what's he get? The shepherd's servants. He wanted the queen. He gets a servant. Or we go to the store. You, I'd like to speak to the manager, right? And what do we get? Some uh, clerk boy from the back who comes up, how can I help you? No, I want the manager, right? We, we, we want angels and the big thing, and we, we get shepherds. Or how about the medical profession? We want to talk to the doctor. I'd like to see the doctor. Do you, not, do you always get to see the doctor? No. <laughs> we get to see the nurse or the PA. No offense to any of the medical profession here today. We know you nurses are the real deal. Doctors just have the messy handwriting. You're the real deal. But you're right. You want to see the doctor. I'd like to speak to the doctor. And we, get, we don't get the doctor. But you, do you get the point? We want bells and whistles, we, and we get a book that takes a lot of work to unlock. And you get a flawed messenger in me, your pastor. Or maybe, how about your parents who shared Christ with you and then you saw as you began to grow, you saw the hypocrisy in their own life and that caused you to doubt your faith maybe, right? The messengers are flawed. It doesn't mean the message is. The message is true. Just because there might be a hypocrisy in the one who brought it doesn't mean the message is flawed. 
Well, here's another example of this. We want to change and grow in simple ways or fast ways or clean ways. If you just, Lord, just let me open the word of God and I'll read your law, the Ten Commandments, and I'll say yes, and I will love you more today and I will do it and it'll just happen. Quickly, too. <laughs> or give me a nice uh, self-help book. Give me 10 ways to love my spouse and I will do it. We want angels. How does God usually do it? Shows us the junk in our hearts. How does he do it? Not angels. He says, live in a messy community of church life and learn to forgive and love with true, messy, real people. That's how he does it. Or, or live with an irritating spouse or children and then be shocked when you see what blah comes out of your heart in those irritating moments. We want a vision or angels and God, what does he do? He sends us people. <laughs> people to cha change us. But that's actually good news. Because that means everybody around you right now or the people you're close to in your life are probably speaking to you about God or showing you something in your life from God. We want angels. He tends to give us shepherds. He tends to reveal true meaning to us in that way, like he did here. They all just got shepherds. Well, here's another contrast in the meaning of the incarnation. This good news that they get, it's good news for all people Peace between God and people. For all people, this, this message. Let's, this, is, this is super important. We're going to do it quick, though. Super important. What's the message the shepherds bring? It's this contrast to what the world kind of thinks Christmas is about. And as I talk about this, maybe that's you today. They get this great message. Just see it in verse 11. It's fantastic. It's about Jesus, born Savior of the world, Messiah who is Lord. I think it's the only place those three words are used together in a scripture like that. In verse 11. And the angel choir shouted out, Glory to God on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, apart from the fact that while Caesar can make, did you catch it in the text, all people register, this baby is the Savior for all. There's a contrast there even for us. Caesar, I can make all people register. Yeah, guess what? I'm saving all people. All people. But the message of Christmas, we've been talking about this too over the last couple weeks, can sometimes get sentimentalized, can it? With, you know, we said chestnuts roasting on open fire and uh, the, 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 the ham around the table with the fireplace going and... Um, you know, all the different things we have and the songs that go with it. And that's all well and good and fun, but it can sometimes detract from the shocking nature of what really happened when Jesus was born. You know, the King James Version of this verse here, the angels shouting out to them, um, glory to God um, on earth, uh, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. The King James Version of that didn't actually help us out too much. And it's probably the one you remember most, which says peace and goodwill toward men. Most of you probably remember it that way. Um, but that actually didn't help us out too much, that translation. We hear that and maybe we think, well, okay, peace and goodwill toward men. That's what Christmas is all about. Maybe that just means I, I, have, I live a good life and it'll be peaceful and God will have goodwill towards me. He's just, he's just, positively disposed towards me, as long as I kind of live kind of good, and I'll have a peaceful life, peace and goodwill towards men. That's what Christmas is about, right? And, and that's kind of what, what, um, what the world is, how it's secularized, it's just peace, charity, give a gift, kindness, just peace and goodwill towards men. Some of you believe this today, actually. There's probably some of you here today that, that believes that that is the message of Christmas. Be good. God has goodwill towards me. And I'll have a peaceful, good life, goodwill towards men because of Christmas, because of some reason, because of Christmas. Except that's nothing like the life of Christ, is it? Who lived the best life. He was the best. He was, lived the, the, good, the best life. And he had no peace in his life at all. Or I think of the Apostle Paul. Really no greater Christian after his conversion who lived and sacrificed for the Lord and the gospel. Did he have peace in his life? No, no, no peace at all. No peace in his life at all. So what's going on here then? Peace and goodwill towards men? Well, the King James Version 
didn't have the earliest Greek manuscripts when it was written. We've discovered earlier manuscripts than they had at that time since it was written. Uh, and, and so it actually, fine to use, okay to read, even preach from, but it's not the most actually reliable uh, interpretation or, of the Bible uh, that we found earlier manuscripts in then, since then. And where it says he is pleased, this idea of pleasure that he has uh, not goodwill is not goodwill towards men is not a great trans, uh, translation. Ours ESV or if you have an NIV it says something like peace with those whom he is pleased. Really is trying to translate to us an idea of grace, of grace. In other words, peace and grace is available for the fight between God and humanity. Peace we need. And what is that peace? Verse 15 says that they went to see this thing that had happened or things accomplished among us, as Luke says in chapter one. The peace that would happen is in a person. It's in a person, this baby, Jesus Christ. Jesus would pay for sin and peace and make peace by grace available, being available to all, finally available for those who have been at war fighting God. You don't need peace unless there's an atmosphere of war, do you? You don't need peace unless there's an atmosphere of fighting taking place. So the peace comes in Jesus Christ and his grace and mercy that allows peace to happen with those who have been fighting against God. It's not just some Christmas kind of general, maybe hallmark sense of, of, of charity and peace on earth. Christmas spirit of peace. The contrasting song isn't live a good life and God will give you a good life. It's that there is not peace between you and God. There is hostility. There is enmity, even the Bible says. You have been fighting God. You've been fighting against God. And you can't obtain it on your own, that peace. Born this day is the Savior. It happened it happened. Let's go see this thing that happened. You have to receive it by grace, that favor. Those with whom he's pleased, those with whom have been graced. You have to receive it by grace. But some of us just need to see this radical truth in your life today. You might say, well, I don't fight against, I don't fight against God. I know he's my savior. I know he's paid for my sins. I have peace. I don't fight against God. Really? Why do you worry about so many things in your life? Become totally undone and anxious and worry and fret and even chew your nails all the way down to the end there. Why do we do that? Why do we get so anxious and all over all the things in our life? When you do that, you are fighting to be God to live on the throne of your own life. I know how life should go. It's not going that way. And, and God, I don't think you're getting it right, actually. That's not just failing God. That's fighting him. That's fighting him. You need peace there. Or some of you, I know, maybe, maybe uh, you, you just can't forgive someone and you hold a really deep grudge and, and, you, and you know what's best to pay back that person. You've got to figure it out. You've got all the scenario and the details and, and, and you're just going to kind of play it over and over in your mind again until it actually happens. You're fighting God as judge. You're fighting God. You need peace. Or some of you here today might say, well, well, I don't fight God. And maybe you kind of got that idea of Christmas that I talked about a little before. I've lived a good life and God, I, I know he'll give me good things. He, I, I've lived a good life, kind of essentially saying he owes me. I'm not fighting him. Yes, you are. You're saying, I don't need a savior. I don't need the thing that happened. I don't need a savior. You're saying, I have my own savior. You're fighting God. You need peace. Do you see that your greatest problems in life, my greatest problems in my life, my greatest fears in life, in your life, your greatest challenges come from fighting God. And not resting in the peace of salvation and the peace of just letting God be God in your life. So even those that know him and truly know him, we still fight God. We need that peace that only the gospel can bring. 
Totally contrasts, doesn't it, with the world's view of sentimental Christian peace, doesn't it? It's totally different. Peace with God. Here's another distant truth of the meaning of the incarnation. Jesus feels as we feel. That's what's so important about the incarnation. Jesus feels as we feel. Because he became a human being, because of what we call the incarnation, God in flesh, two natures in one person, he is able to feel as we feel. He was a real person. And he grew and he experienced real things. And therefore, I want you to think for a moment about Jesus' ability to feel what you feel. Have you ever meditated or pondered that? How is God thinking about you in a moment or feeling about what you're feeling, maybe? Jesus' ability to feel what you feel. Think for a moment of the last time you were struggling emotionally or maybe felt hurt by someone. Maybe it's this morning. Maybe you came in this morning just like reeling and hurting. Can you visualize Jesus right now feeling what you feel? That might feel totally foreign to you. Probably does. Probably feels totally foreign to most of you. Maybe you can. Maybe some of you can kind of get that. Maybe you cannot. There's this strange phenomenon called sympathetic resonance. Sympathetic resonance. I want you to see what it is first before we talk about it. Let's go ahead and play that. See, synchronizing metronomes. Take a look for a minute. I try to annoy you with as many annoying sounds as I could today. That was all my goal the whole morning. That's it. I just want to annoy you with sounds today. That's it. Sympathetic resonance is a scientific idea, and I, I, I can't really explain it fully scientifically to you other than the vibrations of those identical objects around each other because they're the same object doing the same kind of motion. It's transferred to each other, and they begin to feel the same, move the same pace. They synchronize. You know, the same is true for two pianos in a room. You've got two pianos in a room. If you strike a note on one, the string on the other piano that's the same string will do what? Vibrate. Christ's instrument is his humanity. He was like us in every way, Scripture says, without sin. He has the same instrument as you. And so when you are struck, when you are hit with a note of sadness a note of loss, a note of of grief, a note of worry, a note of joy and happiness too. You know what it does? It plays in him as well. He's the same instrument. That's why it's so important that he became a human. He can feel what you feel. I'm not just making this up. It's the reason the writer of Hebrews says this. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrew, the writer says it. Jesus feels what you feel. It's one of the incredible tensions in the incarnation that God could feel the things that we do as finite humans. Maybe you're under incredible stress and pressure today. Or this Christmas season, like as always, maybe a bummer for you. Maybe Christmas is always a downer for you because you've got some really just tough memories associated with it. And you feel like nobody understands you, nobody knows what you're going through, how could anybody possibly? The fact that Jesus is a real human means he can and he does, and he has sympathy for what you're going through. But the beauty is he's also God, so he can do something about it. It's our second contrasting through. Let's go to our third one quick. I'm keeping you a little long today, I know, but this is Christmas since our last sort of Christmas message before the day. Here's our third one. The life-changing result of the incarnation. 
It's our third contrasting truth. It's a little shorter, so we'll finish in a few minutes. We see some incredible changes and life changes in these final verses. So let's look at them. Here's our first one. Here's what I want you to take from this story. Follow where God's grace leads and tell of his grace in our lives. Follow where his grace leads you and tell of his grace in our lives. Did you catch it in the shepherds? They immediately, the text says, with haste, with haste it says, let's go and see this thing that's happened. With haste they go and they follow where God's grace has led them to look for the sign of the baby in the manger. And when they saw it, what did they do? They shared it. They shared all the story. They shared everything that they heard from these angels. And they shared it with everyone. They see and they tell. And I think Luke wants us, we are meant to identify with the shepherds in this story. Average people who get the message, who are then to take as average people and pass the message on. They see it and they tell it. The story. That if you've truly had God find you out in the fields like he did this shepherd and reveal himself to you, of course, maybe not through glorious angels, but nonetheless, just as supernatural, the spirit in your heart, our responsibility is to now see and tell. See and share. And as they do, it says, all who heard it, they marveled at what the shepherds had said. They marveled. It means they, kind of, they were kind of in shock or in awe. Wow, this is kind of a wild story, guys. Were we sure we can trust you, shepherds? Were you out there drinking on the side? We don't know. I mean, this is kind of crazy sounding. They marveled at it. What? See, they heard the message, and it surprised them. And the hearers there are even contrasted against Mary here. They heard it. It astounded them. It's like they came to a Christmas service and they said, that was really nice. It's pretty marvelous, actually. I love the candles and the singing and all the good songs I remember from my childhood. And they went home unchanged. But not Mary. That's why it says, but Mary. You can look at your text there. It says it. But Mary. Why not Mary? What did Mary do? Mary says this. Here's what I'm asking us. Ponder and treasure is what she did. Ponder and treasure what truly matters and hold loosely your own agenda. Listen to verse 19. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. The others might have went home amazed and said, that was pretty cool, that was pretty incredible, the shepherd said those things, but not Mary. Mary was changed because she treasured and pondered. The word treasure means that she stored it up. It really means she memorized it. That's what that means. Mary memorized what happened. They were better at that than we are. The oral culture, they were, most of them were illiterate. She treasured it. She memorized all the things. She valued and cherished what she was learning about Jesus. She treasured it. Ponder means to kind of converse with someone about something. You, you ponder it. You kind of shoot it back and forth to each other. It means Mary chewed on the material in both her heart and her mind for years. She asked questions not only of the words, but she let the truth question her too. Pondered it. She let the reality of Jesus, her boy being the savior of the world, cause her to give up her own agenda and her own ways. She held him loosely after that. What Luke is trying to get across to us in Mary here in contrast to maybe those who just walked away amazed and maybe never thought about it again. What he's trying to get across to us is that we have to take God's word and you have to both treasure it and ponder it. Or another way to put it, you have to accept it objectively, but also subjectively. You've got to do both. Why does he say she memorized it, treasured it, do you think? Remember, Luke is trying to give Theophilus an orderly account of things that were accomplished among us, things that happened among us. Some of these people really struggle with that. How can I trust this story from thousands of years ago? How could I trust this story? It's the reason Luke says, Mary treasured. When Jesus dies, Mary is maybe in her mid-40s, my age. When Luke is writing 15 years after that, she's probably in her 50s or 60s. Think about that. He is saying, I couldn't make this stuff up. Mary treasured it. I couldn't make it up. She memorized it. And she's still alive and relatively young. Think about that. He could not have gotten away with this story. 
Mary treasured it. He couldn't have got away with it if it was fabricated or fiction. Mary treasured it. She memorized the whole thing. Couldn't have got away with it unless it really happened. He's saying we got our story from the mouth of the one who memorized it. She treasured it. The story. Are you sleeping through another Christmas because you struggle with the possibility that this could actually be true? Don't. Luke is telling you. We got it from the mouth of the woman that birthed them. And she had it memorized. It's orderly. It's true. You got to objectively take it in. But you also have to subjectively because she pondered it. She pondered it. When it says pondered the word, it means that at some point you have to just stop reading your Bible. I don't mean stop reading it literally. But you just got to stop reading it and let it do its work on you. You got to start letting it read you. Ponder it. Chew on it. Read us. Yeah, it takes hard work. We've kind of talked about that already. It takes hard work to get at the actual meaning. But at some point, you have to begin to not only treasure it and treasure him, but ponder it. Some of you do say, well, yeah, I actually, objectively, I believe that the Christmas story is true. But you just don't let the work of letting that story read you or the word of God read you meaning change you, challenge your views on things, give up agenda at times, the subjective work of experiencing Jesus, being known by Jesus. Yeah, you might objectively assent to it, but do you know him and does he really know you? And do others know you in the church because of that knowing? That's what it means. She treasured and pondered. One commentator said this week as I was reading, if you treasure the word of the Lord, you will see by faith the Lord of the word. I believe that. Because the center of our story, the center of the word, is a person, Jesus, who is real and fantastic and relational and a great sympathizer. So do you treasure and ponder him? I hope you do. Do the contrasting dissonant truths of the story grab you? I hope they do. Not just in your mind, but in your heart too. Let's pray. Christ, we covered a lot this morning in your story and dove deep into a few parts of it. I pray that you would take whatever is necessary for each and every individual one of our lives this morning and make that one thing Stick to us. Challenge us. Maybe treasure it and ponder it, Lord. And let us be transformed by the birth of this baby, Jesus, we pray. In Christ's name.